We are so grateful for God's answered prayers. I've really been looking forward to today and this week. Um, just excited that this is the beginning of what we call Holy Week. It's a time when we give special focus and effort to, to call to mind to remember all that Jesus did for us during his final week uh, on earth. And just a great, great opportunity for us to celebrate and share the, the good news of all Jesus has done for us. In Palm Sunday, which is the day we commemorate today, uh, Jesus rode into town to a hero's welcome, kind of the ancient Jerusalem equivalent of a ticker tape parade. But Jesus didn't come to be a hero, at least not the kind of hero that people were expecting, wanting. Um, you know, look at it another way, he came to be the biggest hero ever, but they were expecting a different kind of hero than, than he came to be, because um, he didn't ride into town to win a military victory, that's what they wanted. He didn't ride into town to win a political victory over Rome. He rode into town to win a far greater victory over our worst enemies, sin and death. And he did it. And he did it by dying. By dying for us and rising from the dead. And as we think about that, I wonder if you know why he did it. I think many people have heard why. I think just about anybody who's ever heard the Christian message has heard three words that explain why Jesus came and died on that cross. Three very simple words that really sum up what the Bible says over and over again about why Jesus did what he did. For example, you take a verse like John 3.16, maybe one of the most famous verses of all, for God so loved the world, you and me, that he gave his only son that whoever believes, whoever trusts in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, sum that up in three words. Why did Jesus come and do what he did? Because God loves you. God loves you. Those are really simple words. They are amazing, though. And they're absolutely life-changing if you actually believe it. And the more you believe it, the more it'll change you. The bigger a difference it will make. I just, a few days ago, was reading in the Bible, in the, in the book of Exodus. 
And I was reading the account there of how God rescued the people of Israel from just a a horrible experience of, of oppression and slavery in Egypt and how God did all these amazing things and he brought the people out and he parted the waters of the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land and God rescued them from this you know, huge army that was bent on destroying them. And it says that when the people of Israel saw what God did, they worshipped and they put their trust in him. Well, of course. But then not long after that, just not very long at all, when, when they got into the desert and they began to have trouble finding water and food, it says that they started griping and complaining and doubting God. And I'm reading this and I'm, it's, you know, the thoughts come into my head, wow, these people have really short memories. So, so God provides water and then he provides manna. This stuff that just miraculously appears on the ground that they can go out and gather up and, uh, and make bread out of. And it's clearly a miracle because it only appears six days a week, not seven. And on the day before, on the sixth day, they're to gather up twice as much so that they can have it on the seventh day, uh, on the Sabbath, because God wanted them to rest. So this is obviously a miracle. And this goes on for 40 years. Now, you would think that if you, you were Joe Israelite, and every morning you go out and God has providentially just given, provided this, this miraculous food for you, you would think that that would convince you to trust him. And yet again and again over the 40 years, every time any kind of challenge or hardship or difficulty would come up, the people would complain. They would become fearful. They would become angry. And they would say things like, we wish we'd never left Egypt. We had it so good back there in slavery. What was their problem? I mean, why would they do that? How could they, how could they think this? And it occurred to me. It occurred to me that even though they have this daily evidence that God could provide for them, no matter what, God could take care of them, maybe the problem was they doubted that he wanted to. And you know, I have to tell you, after reading kind of what they were like, I wouldn't want to. Maybe they didn't doubt his power so much as they doubted his love. His desire to take care of them. You know, maybe they thought, hey, maybe God doesn't really want to help us. Maybe he just did it because he was bound by a promise he had made hundreds of years ago to a guy named Abraham. And, you know, he couldn't get out of it. 
He's God. He's got to keep his word. Or maybe they thought, you know, even though God had done good things for them in the past, maybe he wouldn't the next time. And see, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm tempted to shake my head and to think, how foolish. How foolish. You know, what, what's wrong with these people? How could they doubt God's goodness? After all he had done for them, how could they doubt that God loved them? And then I realize that if I'm honest... I do the same thing. Even though I've been a Christian for a long time, even though I have master's degree in Bible and theology, even though I'm a pastor, at times I struggle to believe that God loves me. Not just humanity in general, But me, personally, or at least I struggle to to believe it, not just in some intellectual head knowledge kind of way, but to believe it deep down in the core of who I really am. To really know it. And maybe, maybe you have the same struggle at times. I think it's pretty common, actually. But it's not good. Because when we don't know, when we don't know that God really loves us, we don't live the way he wants us to. We, we worry. We worry about what might happen. We get frustrated when things aren't going right. We fail to step out and take risks for Jesus and his kingdom. We we have a hard time being real with other people. We have a hard time loving other people because we're not securing God's love for us. And we don't live with peace, with joy and boldness. So here's the thing. God wants us to know. He wants us to know He really loves us. Look at the prayer the Apostle Paul prayed in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Now, Paul is praying for people who are Christians. These are people who have put their trust in Christ. These are believers in Jesus. It's actually a long prayer. We're just going to look at the end of it in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Look at this. I pray that you may be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Look at it. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, do you see that? God wants you to know. He wants you to know this massive, this huge, this gigantic love 
in Christ that he has for you. A love, he says, that surpasses knowledge. Now, this is interesting. Because that means that when he says, I want you to know this, the knowing that he's talking about is not an intellectual knowing because he says it surpasses knowledge. In other words, our brains aren't big enough to understand how big Christ's love is. So the knowing that he's talking about is the knowing of experience. It's that deep down in the core of your being knowing. You know, I was thinking it was, it's like knowing about gravity. Now, as I stand on the edge here, I know that if I jump, I'm going down. I know that. I, I just know. How do I know that? Do I understand that intellectually? I don't think I've ever even studied it. Uh, Does anybody know what the formula is for gravity, the math? I don't know. Intellectually, it surpasses my knowledge. But I know. I know it. That if I jump, I'm going down. It's going to happen. I'm not going to do it, so you just... Some of you guys are worried about me breaking a leg or something. I know. God wants you to know he really loves you like that. Deep down in the core of your being, he wants you to know it. So how can you? How can you know that? On what basis can you be truly convinced that God really loves you? On, uh, that he loves you with a love so big that you can't even fully wrap your mind around it. A love so big that it sets you free from fear and from worry and from frustration and from selfishness, from anxiety that, that God won't be good to you. What, what evidence is there that you could look at and, and know this? What is there that you can see to persuade you deep in your heart that God really loves you? How can you know? Well, let me first tell you how you can't know. And I want to point this out because I think it's really common for us to look for evidence that God loves us where we shouldn't look, and then when we don't see it, then we're prone to doubt. We're prone to doubt his love. And then that leads to all kinds of messed up thinking and messed up living. So here's how you can't know that God loves you. You can't know by how things are going in your life. You can't know God loves you by how things are going in your life. That's that's where not to look. Yeah, doing this. Yeah, God loves you because things are good. God loves you uh, when you're healthy. God loves you when you've got a good job, when the bills are being paid. God loves you when your family's doing well. God loves you when people are liking your posts on Facebook. 
When things are going well, God loves you. Now, what about when things aren't going well? Let me ask you this. You, you just ponder this. Think, don't answer out loud, but just think about it. If God loves you, will he always answer all of your prayers? Yes. Will everyone that you love always be healthy and happy? If God loves you, will all of your dreams come true? Your dreams for marriage, family, career, Will God make sure that nothing bad ever happens to you or anybody you care about? That you will never experience injustice or cruelty or unemployment or a child rebelling against you or cancer or divorce or some other heart-wrenching situation? Is that how it will be if God really loves you? Well, if you're familiar with what the Bible teaches, you're going to say, well, no. No, I realize that God has not promised that my life will only be filled with good things. So I really can't base my confidence that God loves me on that. Well, that's the right answer. That's the right thing to say. But what do we really believe? How deeply do we really believe it? I, I don't know about you, but it seems to be a lot easier to believe that God loves you when everything's going great. But when things get ugly, what do we believe? Um, I think that for many of us, I think, you know, it's not one bad thing happening that uh, shakes our confidence that God loves us or even two bad things happening. But I think, I think it's possible to have this sort of unspoken quota of bad things that if, if, uh, if, if it goes over the limit, then that's when doubt kicks in. So if the car breaks down inconveniently, which it always does, when it's inconvenient. If the car breaks down, you know, oh, okay. Yeah, I know, I know God loves me, all right? So, yeah, okay. But if the car breaks down and, and then somebody in my life is mistreating me, well, okay, yeah, God, God still loves me, yeah. But if my car breaks down, somebody mistreats me, Somebody I love dies. I get diagnosed with a really terrible disease. And something awful happens to one of my kids. Well, now what? Do I now say, hey, God, what's going on? I thought you said you loved me. Hebrews chapter 11, there is a long list of people in Hebrews 11, people who are examples of what it means to live in a faith relationship with God. That's how God wants us to live, in a faith relationship with him, trusting him. So you have hero after hero after hero, 
people who've lived by faith. And it says, beginning in verse 33 at the end of the chapter, it says, talking about such people, look what it says about them. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Oh, yeah. And then it says, others were tortured and refused to be released that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Question. Which of these people trusted God? Answer. All of them. Question. Which of these people did God really love? All of them. All of them. Your life circumstances are not evidence of God's heart toward you. Your life circumstances are not evidence of God's heart toward you. This idea that if God loves me, and I trust him, then nothing bad ever will happen to me? That's false. God has not promised that at all. What he has promised to those who trust him is that he will use even the worst things for our ultimate joy. And that when we are face to face with Jesus, all of our hurts, will be swallowed up in a glory that far outweighs them all. That's what he's promised. You cannot know God loves you by how things are going in your life. Well, then how can you? If you shouldn't look at your circumstances for evidence of God's love for you, what should you look at? Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died. For the ungodly. For the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows, look at the word, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. How can you know that God loves you? By remembering that Jesus died to give you eternal joy. When what you deserved was the opposite. So if you want to know that God loves you, if you want to be deep down convinced that God loves you, don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at how things are going, whether good stuff's happening to you or bad stuff's happening to you or more good stuff than bad stuff's happening to you. Don't look at other people. Don't, don't look at what they think of you. If you want to be absolutely certain of what God's heart toward you is, Look at Jesus on the cross for you and know that he loves you. Do you realize this verse, Romans 5, 8, okay? God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize it, it, this struck me? This was written to Christians. This was written to believers in Jesus. This was written to people who'd already put their trust in Jesus. They already knew about God's love for them. And yet, this is written to them because God knows. God knows we are going to be tempted at times to doubt his love for us. And then we are going to try to look around at the wrong things to see proof of his love for us. So he shows us where to look. He tells us where to look. He tells us where the proof is. 1 John 4, 9, same point. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's how we can know. Now, it's one thing to hear that. It's one thing to know it uh, academically in our heads but as we saw in Ephesians 3:19 God wants us to know it experientially he wants us to know it deeply he wants you to feel it okay he wants you to feel it that he loves you so i want to share with you some thoughts that helped me feel it John Piper wrote a booklet for Holy Week called Love to the Uttermost. And as I read it, it helped me to feel more deeply the love Jesus has for me. So I want to share a few excerpts with you. Piper says this, As I have pondered the love of Christ for us, I have seen four ways that the depth of his love is revealed. First, we know the depth of someone's love for us by what it costs him. If he sacrifices his life for us, that assures us of a deeper love than if he only sacrifices a few bruises. So we see the depth of Christ's love by the greatness of what it cost him. Second, we know the depth of someone's love for us by how little we deserve it. If we have treated him well all of our life, if we have done all that he expects of us, 
then when he loves us, it will not prove as much love as it would if he loved us when we had offended him and had shunned him and disdained him. The more undeserving we are, the more amazing and deep is his love for us. Third, we know the depth of someone's love for us by the greatness of the benefits we receive in being loved. If we are helped to pass an exam, we feel loved in one way. If we are helped to get a job, we'll feel loved in another way. If we are helped to escape from an oppressive captivity and given freedom for the rest of our life, we will feel loved another way. And if we are rescued from eternal suffering and given a place in the presence of God with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, we will know a depth of love that surpasses all others. And fourth, we know the depth of someone's love for us by the freedom with which he loves us. If a person does good things for us because somebody's making him when he doesn't really want to, then we don't think the love is very deep. So if an insurance company pays you $40,000 because you lost your spouse, you don't marvel at how much this company loves you. They were legally obligated to do it. But if your Sunday school class makes you all your meals for a month after your spouse dies, someone calls you every day and visits you every week, then you call it love because they don't have to do this. It's free and willing. So we see the depth of Christ's love for us in his freedom. No one takes my life from me, he said. I lay it down of my own accord. To push this truth to the limit, let me quote for you a psalm that the New Testament applies to Jesus. It refers, think about this, This refers to his coming into the world to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He says, I delight to do your will, O my God. He rejoiced to do his redeeming work. Now, the physical pain of the cross did not become physical pleasure, but Jesus was sustained through it all by joy. He really, really wanted to save us. He displayed his love like a husband yearning for his beloved bride. Jesus didn't have to die for you. And he didn't have to arrange history so that over 2,000 years later you would hear his good news. He did not have to call you by his spirit to believe. He didn't have to offer you complete forgiveness of all your sins so that you could be right with God. He didn't have to give you the right to become a child of God. He didn't have to promise to come again. And receive you to himself, so that wherever he is, you will be also. He did not have to include you in his people. 
He didn't have to promise to wipe away your every tear and to make right every wrong and to make you happy forever. He didn't have to do any of it. But today, if you believe in Him, you can know that He did all of it because He really, really loves you. That's why. He loves you freely. He loves you deeply. He loves you no matter what. Now, I don't really have a hard time believing that right now. And we're all dressed in our right minds. We've got our Bibles, you know. Yeah, we're singing songs. And come on, the sun is shining. Yeah, God loves me today. How can you know that not just today, but tomorrow and the next day, and every day, even when really bad stuff happens. Well, it starts with this. If you've never received his love, you've never put your trust and hope in him, do it. Do it. You can do it today. I mean, you cannot know his love experientially until you experience it. Makes sense. You can't know his love experientially until you experience it. And he wants you to experience it. Receive his love. Receive him. Jesus said, his word says, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. Admit your sin. Admit your need. He went to the cross because that was what had to happen to save you. Admit you need him. And ask Him to make you His forever. And He will. He will do it. If you want to talk about it, I would love to talk to you about it. You can come talk to me right after the service. You can fill out that uh, Connect card that's in your worship folder. Say, hey, I'd love to talk about receiving His love. You can shoot me an email. I'd love to talk to you about it. Or maybe the person you came with, you talk to them about it. Receive his love. That's where every one of us starts. And then, we have to keep looking at the cross. Keep looking at the cross. For the evidence, for the proof of God's love. You know, and the cross, let's face it, it can be very hard to see in this world because this world is constantly telling us to look at other things. Well, don't look at that. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this for your sense of worth. Look at this new beauty product, this new surgery you could have. Look at this, uh, this new toy you could play with. Look at all these fun little things. Yeah, get your worth from that. Get your sense of significance from that. Get your security from having lots of money. Get your security from this. Having everybody love you. There's so much that distracts us. There's so much that fools us into looking for our security in things that can never provide it. So we have to choose to keep looking at Jesus. Keep looking at what he did for us. We've got to saturate our minds and our hearts with his truth, with his promises, 
with his portrait. This is where we see him. So get into your Bible. Get into the Bible and make it a habit. If it's not a habit, you got to make it a habit. Figure out how to make it a habit. Get into a group. Get into a group where you are constantly encouraged and reminded of Jesus and encouraged to trust him more and more. And pray, pray that he will help you keep your focus on him. Keep looking in the right place for the proof that he loves you. That's how we can know. That's how we can know that God really, really loves us. Let's, uh, let's bow together and pray. And I'm just going to be quiet for a couple minutes and, and let you pray. Just between you and the Lord. And if today is the day you want to just say yes to him and receive his love because you don't know that you ever have, just admit your sin, admit you need him, admit that you don't deserve his love, but believe that he freely offers it to you because of what he's done on the cross and rising from the dead. And if you, like me, have times, maybe you're in one of those times right now where you're, you're looking at the wrong thing to find evidence, to find proof of God's love for you, ask him to help you get your attention back where it belongs. That when you look for proof that God loves you, you look in the right place. You look at Jesus on the cross for you. So let's take a minute and let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for reminding me that you really love me. And I want to thank you for reminding all of us that you really, really do love us. And Lord, I know I'm prone to forget that, to doubt it sometimes. And I pray you'd help me keep looking where I should look. Help all of us do that. Help us be so convinced of your great love for us that we know it. We know it in the depth of our being. And free us from the fear, free us from the frustration, free us from that self-protective kind of stuff that we do when we don't trust you. Help us live, Father, with the peace, with the joy, with the confidence that comes from knowing you really do love us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.